Welcome to Bigger Than The Hustle podcast, where I give you a fascinating insight into the world of real-life entrepreneurs and how they live their lives outside their business. Every week, I bring you super interesting conversations about the energy, thinking, habits, mindsets and disciplines that make them successful in their life, which in turn allows them to be successful in their business. It's powerful conversations, uplifting interviews and a mega dose of solo inspiration from me. We dive right into what gives them the confidence to follow their own path and attempt to get unapologetically real so you can learn what it takes to show up in your life and live your truth unapologetically. Now today I've got a, a, a guest with me. Her name is Layla. Um, she's, she, her line of work is very relevant today in the way the world is sort of shaping up today. So I'm not gonna sort of go into it too much because I'm sure she'll introduce herself a lot better than I can. So without further ado, hi Leila. Hi Vavik, thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. Not at all. Um, so I'm gonna hand the mic over to you. If you could sort of introduce yourself in your words um, and then we can take the conversation from there. Fab, so I'm Leila and I run a business called Diverse Minds that I started running full-time and it was a side hustle, which we can talk about Bavik uh, before that and from October, 2017. And I create happy, equal and mentally healthy workplaces through coaching, training, consultancy. And there are two bits that I focus on in my work. One is mental health and wellbeing and the other is about race, culture and equity. And I also coach people one-to-one, particularly black, Asian, global majority, people of color professionals who want to tackle their work-life balance challenges so they can spend time guilt-free and stress-free and doing the things that they love. Perfect. So a lot of things came up there. Um, now, what's quite interesting is the relevance of this conversation today, you know, with the, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I know since that's happened and things like this in the world happen all the time, but this seems to have sort of really mushroomed uh, a, a response from the world, um, which is great because there's so many things that have been sort of brushed on the carpet, the, the, the things, unsaid things that the way people live their lives. Um, now, if you can give sort of a little bit of an insight to the way you think about this and the importance to what you do and how you can sort of pu- push the conversation forward, especially within the Asian community, because I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. So I've been thinking a lot actually about anti-blackness in Asian communities. So, you know, my particularly my particularly my mum, she's always called out anti-blackness. She is a real kind of champion of equality and people behaving properly and people not doing what we see in the South Asian community quite a lot. Um, but I suppose if I think about, if I go to the first part of your question, which is what does this mean to me and how do I integrate these, this into my work? Um, I sort of feel that racism has always been a strand that's run um, throughout my life. And again, that will vary for different South Asian communities, people from different backgrounds where they've grown up um, and your generation. Um, and again, it's interesting because my mum said she didn't feel any racism in the 70s in the UK, uh, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, I felt racism in the UK from the, in the 90s all the time. Um, so that always, that sort of piqued my interest and it was always there. And then when I went into working in a career and I worked at the University of Oxford on race, religion and belief, um, just the racism was appalling. So it's not BNP placard holding, but there's stuff around the systems, which is why I think is interesting with Black Lives well, Matter, I say interesting, but this particular movement of Black Lives Matter, is that it, it can be really easy for people to go, well, I, I'm not part of the police. I don't kill black people. I don't stamp on someone's neck. But what are the ways in which we feed into the structure that exists that disadvantages black communities so severely? and also other communities as well. But there's a particular hatred and there's a particular um, vitriol, I feel, towards black people. And it, it's, we all have a responsibility to challenge that and equalize the system. Right. Um, because what really, what really is the purpose of upholding and denying racism? I don't think there's any purpose. It's difficult, but we need to have those conversations in order to make things better for everyone. And actually, you know, who do systems serve? Even if we look at the nine to five, the nine to five, working nine to five as a system that served people, um, Victoriana probably before, that had a family at home, traditionally a woman and kids, and they would go out to work, they would have their lunch in a pub, they would go back to work, come home at five o'clock and dinner would be ready for them. Actually, the nine to five system doesn't really serve people in the same way anymore. Very few people actually. So 
you know, that's why we have to think about this holistically. And I always try and talk about race and culture, even when I've spoken about mental health, because often when people talk about mental health and diagnosis, but even workplace, positive workplace practices, it does often come from a Eurocentric white perspective and therapies come from, you know, Young um, and Freud. And, but actually, if we think about the rich plurality of the different cultures from Latin America, South America, the, the whole continent of Africa, India, China, which could be a continent in and of itself, Korea, yeah. um, North Korea, South Korea, Japan, we have very different systems of thinking. So that kind of therapy and that kind of perspective doesn't always heal us. And um, so, yeah, so I think we have to keep talking about it to understand. And, you know, there's a very, very famous author and anti-racist scholar, um, Ibrahim X. Kendi, and he says it's not good enough to say I'm not racist, you have to be anti-racist. And it's also something that Angela Davis said. And I totally agree with that. And, and if we don't keep talking about this, and it also, he says, it goes on, it's about, it goes more, it's not just about love and education. Yeah, fine. But if we really want to change things, we have to, have to fundamentally look at systems, change systems, set standards, expect more of ourselves and not take the status quo anymore. And, and that's really kind of, mm. maybe I don't say it as radically yeah, as that yeah, when I'm yeah. delivering to corporates, but that is essentially what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I think the two key facets that jumped out at me from, you know, the little introduction you gave is um, racism or, or, or um, diversity and uh, mental health. Two things which I think are huge, huge topics, um, huge things that we can, we all need to be, be speaking about more, especially, you know, mental health within, I, you know, I heard a statistic, you'll probably know this better, um, the uh, suicide rate amongst young Asian men within the UK being sort of one highest in proportion to the mm. community. Um, and that shocked me a lot because I was a part of that, you know, I still like to see myself a little bit younger. Um, I'm sort of more middle-aged now, I suppose. Um, but I get it, you know, in terms of the information that's being thrown at young people these days, whether their young minds are ready for it. You know, I've always said we, we, we were, I was allowed to grow up organically. What I mean by that is we were allowed to make mistakes and, you know, we only had a few people around us. We had a little bit of information in terms of TV and conversations. And then we were allowed to fall down, stand up, fall down. But I'm sure it's similar to you as well. And therefore we are, our brains grew at an organic rate as opposed to the super steroid growth of fertilizer that the kids have these days, you know? Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad that we sort of grew up in that. Now for your parents, now like, this is another conversation I'd like to just jump into right now is you said about your, your mum, did you say that she did or she didn't experience racism in the 70s? She, she didn't. She said okay. in UK, yeah, she didn't, yeah. she personally didn't feel that she experienced racism. Yeah. She knew it was there, but she never yeah. felt that she did. And, but then she also said, maybe I just saw things differently, but yeah. she would always call out yeah. anti-negativity from her, in her own community. So yeah. she saw that aspect of it, but she personally never felt racism directed towards her in the 70s as an Asian woman. And it's funny because uh, we, uh, my dad, very similar to your mum, said exactly the same thing. You know, when he came over, he came over in 68 and then sort of, you know, went from city to city like they, you know, a lot of people did. Um, and he says he never experienced racism overtly, maybe subtly, um, but never someone in your face saying this is how it was. And he said maybe because he's always been quite a positive mindset. He's always seen things in the, you know, the grass is greener in terms of that sort of mindset. Maybe sometimes when you have that, and it's like similar to myself, you know, I, I heard that you said that you probably experienced racism, whether that be overt or covert. Um, and for me growing up, I don't know whether it was because we were sheltered, whether it because we lived in Leicester or what it was, where the majority of it's Asian people. I never really experienced it overtly where it's in my face. Um, maybe whether I was just me being ignorant, maybe, maybe I was being sheltered by my parents and never really shown or, or brought to those conversations. But never, even when I went to university, I was the only, one of the only Asian people in my year at you know, uh, Leeds University. And again, there were a few covert things, but nothing that made me feel that I was different. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you can jump into some of the things that you maybe experienced, how, which gave you your, the, the thinking that you have today, and that's probably led to that side hustle becoming a main hustle to the business that you're in today, so that you can try and change the conversation. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, I think for me, it's, it's, it, 
I've always felt like an inside outsider as well. So even in the Asian community, I didn't grow up with my extended family. I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I don't really know them that well. Like recently, mm -hmm. um, one of my aunts passed away, and and it is really difficult because I I haven't seen her for years, and so yeah, I I, I didn't. And it's yeah, so it it's like I don't feel wholly what people would expect this yeah. girl to be like, and I definitely don't fit in with mainstream what I would say English white culture. Yeah. And I think I always felt like that. I always felt like an outsider because I had the pressure to. It was interesting that you were saying that you felt that you were able to make mistakes and get up again. Um, and I think in terms of social media, yes, that's different now. But I feel like in terms of my family, there was a lot of pressure on me to do right to always be top student to always do this and I couldn't always do that um, and I tried really hard and I you know I was I'm lucky I loved school and I loved being academic but I, I didn't feel there was much margin for error because I think there was that mentality of there's only space for one person to be really amazing and if you're not really amazing you're going to it's going to be really bad your future is going to be really bleak because of this kind of sense of um, you've got to be, be better because you are brown mm. um, and so I think it was so, so school I've always been bullied at school so that was one of the things um, racial bullying being being excluded that was a really big thing so I'd find out that people had had parties or that people had messed up at the weekend and I'd not been invited again thank god we didn't have social media because it would have made it <laughs> ten times worse um, so that's why I'm really passionate about including people because I know very raw and actually even talk about it now you think oh who cares but it still hurts you know to think why was I excluded so that you know that's a, that's an interesting one the kind of emotions it brings up in me um uh, yeah just sort of being made to feel really othered um what else I think it's this the subtle the subtle things um teachers having assumptions about your abilities about um how good like you you're really good at math but you're not good at English that's not necessarily true um yeah, I suppose that I could have had it a lot worse. I was really lucky with a lot of teachers I had. And like I said, I was uh, very fortunate. And then I went on to sixth form in a different, you know, in Cambridge. And that was a whole different ball game. I felt like I could breathe. I felt like it was really different. There were lots of people who were children of academics who traveled around the country. There were far more Asian people. Because um, I think I was one of five or six Asian people in a school of a thousand. Or there weren't many of us and maybe three black girls all across the years whereas mm. Cambridge was much different it was just a massive sixth form of two years and everyone was brilliant mm. um so I guess again it's knowing isn't it that when you face tough times and I often look back now and this maybe sounds a bit macabre but I I do think to myself I'm amazed I didn't self-harm I'm amazed I didn't I, because it was very very lonely mm. but I guess when you know that you've done that you know that and even now with COVID and everything going on and isolating I'm an extreme extrovert so one of my friends said to me this must be hell for you <laughs> I, said, no, I think it was like week four I said no I'm doing okay and then week five I did dip a bit but I think that's the thing is when I've struggled with having to isolate or not see people or not live my life in the way that I want to I a think about how lucky I am generally and b think about this is not the worst time in my life by a long stretch so actually it's okay mm. and I wouldn't I'm not really one of these people that's like, oh, I'm so grateful for the awful things that happened because I'm not really, but, but it does, it does help you, doesn't it? It does give you yeah. that resilience to think about, yeah. um, well, you know what, you've, you've done worse before and you got through it so you can do it again. And you mentioned something there uh, when you were at, you know, school, college, etc. always feeling a little bit, you know, not part of any real sort of community or group within that. Do you think your coping mechanism in those days was to shut it out and ignore it or was to face it and actually accept that this is how it is and I'm going to move my life forward? Because I, we do get quite a few young people listening to this and I'm sure a lot of them will um, resonate with what you said in terms of not feeling a part of any sort of real group or, or feeling like maybe I'm on my own here you know constantly mm -hmm. even though you may have people around you it's not really somewhere where you feel connected or you feel I, I'm I, I fit in here which way did you deal with that looking back now in hindsight maybe you didn't realize it was happening at that point but in hindsight how did you deal with that and how has that helped you today I think I probably oscillated between the two the two things that you said mm -hmm. from yeah and I think two things that really helped me was one was music. So I was a massive indie girl, actually, which has nothing to do with kind of cross-cultural music. And I and I I just listened to a lot of music. I would listen to 
music endlessly Um, and I think that was one thing that really helped me the other thing was reading um, so I remember Mary J Blige was really big when I was growing up Erica Badu was really big when I was growing up so reading their stories Missy Elliott I adore Missy Elliott Uh, Lenny Kravitz's story is really fascinating so Mm. a lot of musicians stories Um, I used to subscribe but it doesn't exist anymore there was a a, a, it was like a leaflet you know in the days where you had to order things um, on post and write letters Um, called No Pass Around and that was um, a leaflet about anti-racism how you can get involved in anti-racism so I think that's how I I tried to do it fanzines finding spaces where people were talking about things which did shift towards the end of the 90s Mm, Um, mm. and there was obviously that there was like a lot going on wasn't there at Brick Lane when it was predominantly Bangladeshi and Bengali um, and the kind of drum and bass scene and people were talking about mixed race relationships and mixed race marriages and mixed race kind of fusion of music and I think that is what kind of got me through it that Mm. maybe I don't have people around me but there are people going through the same experience even if they're not close to me. Mm. And with the you know you'll probably remember this in terms of when you were interested in something, you did like something, it was so much harder to be into it because you had to work so much harder. So what I mean by that, you like music, you had to go and get a CD from a shop or you wanted to read something. A lot of time you had to go and buy a book. It wasn't an online order. You had to go to a library or find it from a library, right? So because there was so much more friction involved in actually being into something, I think you appreciate and you got into it even more because you know so much more work. Now it's just a press of button, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like this this week. You know, I like, you know, blue cardigans this week. Let me be into blue cardigans now. And I think there's positives and negatives on both sides. I think it's positive that you can, you, the, the plethora of information allows us to be exposed to so many new new things that maybe we never would have been experienced mm. you know exposed to because of our communities our cultures and our limited you know viewpoints of the people around us um but i think the positive was because there wasn't so much we can, could enjoy it more because we had more time to enjoy it and we had more time to be into it as well whether that be on our own or whether that be with people mm. and otherwise it was brilliant that we could you know have these it's more like I had used to have a friend and he was into um, maths, you know, similar to why was I, we both used to do that together. And um, just, and we were, you know, when you had the geek corner, so I was part of the geek corner. <laughs> I loved it. But I always felt that my, my, my parents and my dad, when we got a school report, it always say, Bavik's very disruptive. He does all his work, he answers all his questions, gets to write, but it's very disruptive. And I said to my dad, why do you think that is? Because it's all boring. Like, they're not telling me anything new, right? Um, now, I, I know schooling tries to be a bit more progressive in terms of, you know, giving new work for people that are trying to sort of progress. But in those days, it was just disruptive. And my dad didn't want us to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. He just wanted to be quiet, you know, toe the line. The teacher's always right. Don't question them. And now I think that's changed. And I'm so glad about that. Now, do you know with the conversations got sort of flipping back to racism again? If we have within our own families, okay, there, there's certain, you know, being part of an Asian family, there's there's always sometimes that someone may some say something in jest, in banter, and it actually isn't all right. Um, they may not mean it in that. So the intention is not to be racist or to be nationalist or whatever way it is, um, but it still comes out. So which way do you think we can approach that without getting too confrontational, but where you can make a point um, and to show that this is the line in the sand, this is, you know, I'm not willing to accept that anymore. Yeah, and the other point about that is that racist language sounds different in different languages. Yes. So if you're speaking yeah. in or Hindi or Punjabi yeah, yeah. or Urdu, yeah. it, it, it it does mean terrible things as it does in English, but it has a different nuance. So how, yeah. again, we receive that information, we might feel the impact is lessened than if someone were to say it in English. So I think it's one is to check your own reaction about that. Actually, what do these words really mean in whichever language they're being spoken in? And just to say to people, so I, I put a video up on my personal Facebook yesterday um, that actually my mum had sent to me, and it was a video of a mixed race couple. It was um, an, an Asian guy and um, a British, black British woman. She had Ghanaian heritage and just how much backlash initially that she had faced wanting, you know, being together from his mum. And at the end, they said in the video, 
it is difficult, but just to try and say to someone, where did these ideas come from? Where did these perceptions about black people come from? And they said when they asked her that question, she was like, oh, actually, I, I really have no idea. Mm. And the thing is, often it, it comes from, I know there's a caste system. So in certain religions, there's caste system. Yeah. And even if it's different religions, that caste system has been often absorbed from the cultural values. So there's always stuff to do with caste and skin color and colorism and shadism. I think, we mm. need to, I think it might be easier to start the conversation about that. Mm. But I also think it's to think about, well, why, you know, why are we pitted against each other? This is all a legacy of colonialism. But that could go over some people's head but to ask the question you know why why where does this come from why are we using these words yeah. why are we describing people like this actually this word if we translate it it's pretty bad do mm. what should we be using this word mm. what, what if people call us the p word how does that make mm. us feel so why are we then using this language about other people mm. because you also do have to respect the hierarchy you can't speak um, inappropriately to elders i understand that it can be really difficult to challenge elders or just to say gently, you know what, I don't want to use that word. When I'm here, can we not use that word? Let's use yeah. a different word. Mm. Um, yeah, because I think language is really powerful. And if we change the words we use, it doesn't happen overnight, but it starts maybe to shift the mindset and people will stop using their negative language. I think um, that's a really good way when you, when you ask a question about it, as opposed to saying, I don't like this overtly, yeah. because I think that puts up straight away some kind of barrier or resistance because mm -hmm. it seems like then... Uh, an attack doesn't it but when it's a question to it's a bit of curiosity and a bit of intrigue as to why and I'm sure a lot of the time the answer is I don't know because it might be so deep ingrained within upbringing you know being raised in a different country you know I know like with my parents they were raised in sort of like like India and Africa and Kenya um, and a lot of the black people were workers were laborers they'd work within the family and they were although they were a part of the family they were still seen as you know the workers and laborers and i'm sure there's a lot of subconscious bias that comes in because of that because they were never seen as equal because yeah. they were you know within that within that realm within that home and that obviously has changed but unless you unpick it yourself and understand subconsciously this is how i think being aware is obviously always the first step to any change and then once you're aware, you can make conscious moves to, you know, um, adapt to a new way of thinking or a way that you feel more comfortable with. And with that generation, you know, even like knowing my dad, my dad is probably the most open person and, and, and someone that's always pushed the boundaries, always tried to do something in a different way. But there are certain things and I'm so glad that I can have conversations with him openly and he doesn't get you know there is a little bit of resistance but he's open to listening now um and it's nice to be surrounded by you know family and community that are open mm -hmm. because i know not a lot of people listening it's not like that and I'm, I'm not sure what it is around you as well but for me especially all the elders are like equal to us and they will listen to us you know openly in terms of they'll hear the words we're saying and not say you're younger what do you know mm. it's like this podcast that my dad listens to all of them and even though there's certain conversations certain times i sway he doesn't like me swearing as well and he says if you can cut that out it's fine but he goes everything you talked about i'm so proud that you're even discussing these things because it takes a certain mindset and i said dad this come from you though I, you've always pushed the boundaries. That's all I've ever seen. So I can't, I don't know any other way, right? So your upbringing, you, Leila, in your upbringing, how has that moved you to be in the line of service that you give to the world today? I think it's almost what I call the inner rebellion. So what mm -hmm. do I mean by the inner rebellion? It's kind of, it's interesting what you're saying about school and it, the reports that you were disruptive. So I, so the teachers used to say in secondary <laughs> school, particularly chemistry, I loved chemistry and I could talk and I would actually be talking because I'd be helping other people. Um, I would get like top marks and but the teacher was like, she's always talking. I don't know what to do, but clearly it is going in. And I used to get moved in French, but I loved French. I was really good at French. But it wasn't because I was bored. It's because I was... I I love talking to people, but it is funny. So that inner rebellion, and what do I mean by that? Is things that I could get away with that were get away with that I could push against, push back against in an acceptable way, so that I didn't have to conform to expectations. Mm -hmm. 
I can't really say if I can put my finger on what those expectations were. I think they were about you will be really good at school. You will be really good at school. There wasn't my, my background's different in the sense that it wasn't really talked about marriage. I wasn't betrothed to anyone. You know, these stereotypes drive me up the wall because that's not my story. I know it's a lot of other people's story, not my story. But it was always about I will not, you know, I never wanted to have children. I never wanted to be a mum. I was not going to do that because I saw maybe not directly, but women in my family, actually my cousins, out of choice, this was completely their choice. Many of them married young, young, far younger than their mothers. I don't know why. Mm. And then sort of, I just thought, well, what was the point of having a private school education if you're just, and I didn't have a private school education, but what was the point if you're just going to go and have kids? It really irked me. So mm. I think I have this thing um, that I push back against and, you know, I've got to work on my judgment around it um, about being strong because I feel like um, that well, I didn't really have many role models. I didn't, you know, I, I've got this thing about being a strong woman, about being a strong brown woman and I've got to be strong and being strong to me means doing something really well speaking out so I think there's a lot about um, I was always told growing up you've got to be sweet and gentle and I reflect on that and it really irks me and I think I know what I know what my mum was trying to say but I think a better way of saying it would have been be kind and calm but it, again it's a choice because I think it, it, that goes across all genders like be sweet and gentle feels very directed at girls and I often mm -hmm. think I say mum if you had a boy would you have said that and she said yeah yeah I would I would I would but yeah, I think it, I think it's more about saying be kind and calm, take a deep mm. breath, be kind to people, be calm, and and I think that is what she was trying to say. So for me, that was like, no, I'm not going to be sweet and gentle. I'm going to be outspoken. I'm going to be loud. I'm going to be, and anyone who knows me knows I speak my mind. In fact, my friends have a joke. They call me Layla outrageous. I have two modes: outrageous and Layla outrageous. Um, so so yeah, and I and I guess part of that is about shaking up systems and not accepting the status quo and. That's why I started my own business. I couldn't handle workplace politics anymore. I just couldn't handle it. And there's only so much that you can be a tempered radical where you can be a radical in a kind of container, a free radical, um, going back to the chemistry analogy. Yeah. But, but, I, but I, I just, I couldn't, I can't, I couldn't do it. I just thought, yeah. you know what, if, even if it's a risk, even if I just make a thousand pounds a month, I don't care. I've just got to do this. So I, I think I think that's how it's led me to, to do what I do and being able to speak my mind. And if someone doesn't want to work with me, they don't have to hire me again. But I, I don't kind of feel at people's behest in the same way. Uh, I think it's something you just said there really resonated with me about politics and organisations. Um, when I finished my... Um, so I went to Leeds University and I did a, a degree there and I came back to Leicester and I did another... I, I did a master's just purely to keep my dad off my back because I didn't want to get a job. So I said, oh, let me, let, me do, let me keep him off my back for another year. Um, so I did that and then finished that and I went to London for six months to work. I was working in this satellite organisation. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed everything, but I, I hated the politics um, and the, the ability of someone just because they knew other people to get ahead and other people who were working really hard just being suppressed mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they never spoke up. And that thing really irked me. And that last six months within the organization, that's it. I said, that's it. I'm just going to go on on my own and start my own business. This was like, like 22, 23 years old. Because I thought if this is how the workplace is going to be the whole time, I don't want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of somewhere where if you work hard, you, you progress. And if you don't, you get pushed back and that's it, you know. And it was that simple thing that has led me to, you know, 20 years on, mm -hmm. still doing exactly the same in terms of looking for new opportunities for myself and trying to raise people around me and bring people in that may, I can see there's a lot of, um, th there's, there's so much um, goodness within them that they, but they're being held down by the organizations that they're in just because they're not outspoken, just because they're not loud, just because they take, take it, you know, uh, just because of their nature. And I wanted to always be, let's bring these in and try and, not look after them but try and give them an equal you know footing in the, you know their their life and their communities now so that was one thing the the thing you um, when when you were talking was when do you know when you do go into organizations and you do give sort of like your 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 talks or your workshops and things like this rewind five years to now how do you think things have changed? Is it, I know now a lot of organizations approach you because obviously the, the, the rhetoric has changed, the ethics has changed with a lot of organizations, whether that's been forced, whether that's because they've wanted to. 
to say even just five years ago when things, you know, even the conversation were completely different. Mm. What are you seeing now in terms of the approaches of organizations to the, the, the people in the world out there? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really great question because some part of me feels that has there really been much change and having worked in this field for sort of 15, 16, 17 years, sometimes I despair. But I suppose recently in the last four months, okay, so five years ago, I think the positives on the mental health and well-being side, yeah. that's really exploded. And I think people mm -hmm. are much more willing to talk about it. And also I feel there's been a shift around proactive approaches as well. So there can be a lot of knee-jerk reactions, but I think there's a lot more proactive planning. Let's talk about well-being. Let's think about the apps. Let's think about the good stuff people can do. If people become unwell, what can we do? Let's upskill managers. That's really changed. A lot of appetite and thirst to train managers and people up in the right way to have these conversations. Mm. On the race equality side, I feel like in the last four months, there's been much more about white majority cultures wanting to understand what white privilege is, what white fragility is, what white defensiveness is, understanding more about white saviour complex. I feel also that we're having more of this conversation about South Asian anti-blackness, which I think wasn't really talked about very much at all. Mm. Um, I feel that maybe organisations are starting to realise they do need to put money towards this. So I know when lockdown happened, I had lots of calls from people saying, oh, budgets have gone. And I was expecting that. And then to have a call three months later, oh, actually, budgets are back on now. So, so <laughs> there is money there, isn't there? And I think it's how that's distributed. Yeah. Um, distributed. Um, so, yes, I think, I think we st I still feel like, though, we're still in our infancy talking about this. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and people need to know their history. You know, we've got the kings and the queens, but we've also got all this social history. Um, you know, how racism came about. There's that famous story, isn't there, about the black trumpeter who worked for Henry VIII. And there's a letter that he'd written to Henry VIII for a pay rise. And actually, um, black communities, black people were in Britain, A and B. They weren't treated. There's a lot of theory around they were much seen as much more equal citizens then than they were as time went on and with colonial, colonialism and then slavery and everything else but also that the black story doesn't start with slavery it starts you know it starts with kingdoms it starts with gold it starts with trade it starts with supporting mm. communities so I feel that there's suddenly the pennies dropping very very slowly uh, but ha now for me the question is the longevity of that and how long it's going to last so mm. progress on mental health dipping in peaks and troughs with race and race equity and understanding the complexities of that and then you know we're having lots of conversations now about should we use the term BAME um, it's used a lot of medical mm. terminology with research but is it right do we want people of colour but in a lot of generations in the UK don't like people of colour they prefer black with a capital B younger black communities don't like black with a capital B because they don't feel people like us really belong in that category I get why mm. but yeah so, so I think we've still yeah. got a long way to go but at least people are starting to use the R word you know to talk about race to talk about communities of color to talk about that cultural capacity mm. and another thing with um race and racism um i've got friends i in poland and, and an interesting viewpoint they have because they're all they're all white from different european countries so like french and, and spanish and things and, and a lot of the girls are polish um and their a lot of their viewpoint is the word racism sometimes is misinterpreted for nationalism. So mm -hmm. they're very proud of their country. They don't want their country to change so much in terms of new people coming in and trying to change the fabric of what they believe, which I get. I understand that, right? Um, but then to say that I'm racist because I believe that my country should remain with the same ethical you know, standpoint and viewpoint where's the actual line of that because that's a bit i struggle to understand in terms of when someone believes they're superior because of their skin color or when someone just believes that i like Brit being british because british values stand like this for me at what point does it become racist well that's a really great question i'm sure a lot of scholars would have different opinions on that and i, I guess it's about you can be proud of your nation and proud of your culture but you could also welcome people in and in and in and support them in being included in your culture and I suppose mm -hmm. you know nationalism is a bit of a dirty word these days isn't it and I, I get why and, and I've got lots of friends who are anti-nationalist and I, I totally get why and I think the problem with nationalism is it is that exclusionary thing isn't it that yeah. we are proud and you have to fit in with us and there's only certain places and there's only this and there's only that but if you look 
throughout history, migration is really a natural part. Everyone's migrated, everyone's moved around. If you look at the history of Cheddar Gorge Man, for example, mm-hmm. when they found, and again, that kind of pushback around, oh, this is a liberal elite thing. It's like, actually, it's science. They've done carbon dating. Um, so I think, yeah, there's, you can absolutely be proud of who you are in your country. But I also think, why do you feel that people coming outside of it will ruin that identity, will change things? And things might change, but things always change. I don't think they ever stay still. So I think it's about the hostility, the hatred, the lack of understanding, and also the fear around losing your own culture. If you're strong and proud of that, why does it matter if other people come in? Mm. But I'm sure and, I'm sure other people wouldn't see it that way, and I know I know I'm, I you know I haven't been to Poland. I've got a lot of Polish friends, but I've never yeah. been there. Yeah. Um, but it's a bit simplistic for me to say that. But I, yeah, I I don't see why it's ex- it has to be so exclusionary. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, is when especially you know within Britain and within the makeup of this community that we live in, um, when people speak about being British and, and, and being British, but if you go back far enough, there isn't actually any British, is there? There's so many different communities that came, you know, the Vikings, the Saxons, you know, the Anglo-Saxons, etc., came in, and then other communities from different parts of the world. So if you look, go back far enough, there actually isn't a basis, is there? It's all, it's all immigrant communities from the yeah. start, right? Um, same with America as well, you know, all sort of immigrant yeah. communities. Oh. Well, actually, Native um, American communities are, yeah. are they? Are the original? Are they, yeah, the original. That's right. But, but actually, everyone else is an immigrant, and yeah. there's hardly a handful of Native Americans left, really, if you consider the whole population of the USA. Same with Native Canadian First Nations, Canadian mm. people, Aboriginal communities. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Again, something I'd like to jump back to, which just sort of sprung to mind just now. You're talking about strength. You know, you're, you 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 deal with a lot of ways in in a strong way in terms of sort of like your ability to dive, you know, decipher information and, and use that to, you know, counter argument maybe, or just give information or make, you know, enlighten someone with a point of view they may not have experienced, right? And that comes from strength because you have a belief in yourself and your own abilities. How do you deal with vulnerability when you feel in a vulnerable position? That's that's a great question because again, some feedback I've had is you need to show more vulnerability, and I don't, and 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 that's the thing, because actually I'm really emotional. Like I'll drop, I'll, I'll cry at a drop of a hat, and I don't want to be like that. Um, but, and so this is why I, I try and put this shield on. How do I deal with vulnerability? Um, I guess there's two, like vulnerability publicly and vulnerability privately. Yeah. So they're, they're people that I'm really happy to be vulnerable around, like mm-hmm. support groups and you know, my family and stuff. But um, yeah, publicly, I really struggle with that. And I, you know, there are lots of mental health campaigners that talk about their lived experience. And I just couldn't do that because I don't want people to know. So I do have, I guess, that is that that there is a bit of an Asian culture around you don't talk about what goes on inside the house, outside the house. I feel that's quite a strong element of definitely my background anyway. And so I still struggle with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I kind of push back against feeling vulnerable. I really hate it. I really hate feeling like that. Um, which isn't particularly healthy and there's you know I'm a big fan of Brené Brown and all the power of vulnerability stuff but how do you actually do that so you know vulnerability if I've made a mistake or done something wrong yeah I'm happy to deal with that and put my hand up but when it comes to emotions or displaying things or showing that I'm struggling I'm not I'm not I'm not good at that (laughs) so I don't deal with it very well (laughs) where do you think that comes from uh, have you ever unpicked it have you ever unpicked that yeah I think it's just because I felt I felt weak for a lot of my life and I felt okay. like I didn't have a voice and I felt like I didn't have control over things so okay. whether it was you know whether I could go to a party or you know do something really small things and so for me I just I think it's about that control I don't want to control other people but just having that control over how I plan things I'm really structured I really like plan I'm not spontaneous spontaneity freaks me out um <laughs> No, we can't do that. I've got um, I really don't deal with it very well at all. It's not on my Google Calendar. It's yeah, not on my Google Calendar. It's not there. Color-coded. Google Calendar, color-coded. It's not on there. I say, I say, can you send me a calendar? Right? I can't do it otherwise. Um, yeah, so that's, I think it comes from that kind of control, wanting control, not having felt weak for a long time, not feeling mm. I had a voice. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, looking, flipping the coin the other side. What inspires you today? Mm. Um, I think it is about, 
it goes back to something you said actually about workplaces and how you see people who work really hard but they don't get anywhere and what inspires me is to um, in ask questions and um, support people to be where they need to be whether it means leaving whether it means staying whether it means having a difficult conversation with their boss whether it means doing things differently I think that's what inspires me in working with communities of color and to um, ensure that they know that how talented they are to harness their cultural capability um, and also for us all to have conversations about um, not just mental health and not just you know people often say with self-care but to really think about well, how do, your job is to keep yourself alive in a way. Like you can't, mm -hmm. We can't always do that because things happen. But your job is, if you're, you're really important, if you don't look after yourself, who's going to do it for you? Mm. And we need you and you're really important. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what inspires me. And to also see the steps that people take. So people feel dire, they feel stuck. And then you might have a session with them or they'll, they'll be in a webinar and then I'll get a LinkedIn message from them saying, oh, that was brilliant. I've now been able to have this difficult conversation and I managed to work part time or I've managed to get my adjustments, my workplace adjustments. Mm -hmm. I've managed, yeah. So I think it, it's that it's those small, tangible changes that, that inspire me and keep me going. Yeah. And with, you know, I know you don't have kids, um, but there's a lot of parents that listen to this as well. Um, and raising kids is minefield you know yeah i'll tell you this my you know you'll know my daughter's 14 my son is nine um and they're sort of now past the initial stages where they're sort of developing their own now viewpoints and they'll they'll openly vocalize what they believe and what they feel now especially with Bersha, um because she's she can be as harsh as they can you know i'm the pacifier lot in this in this household um so so moving forward um for people with young children we, we, you know we we i don't know if this it's because of the way we were raised but mm. we weren't parented at all really i'd say you know my dad worked a lot and he had a shop and we never i only knew my dad after 14 or 15 really even though we lived together we never really saw him as as we grew up uh, my mum was a mother never worked she always was you know the homemaker at home and you know the traditional family setup in those yeah. okay now <clears throat> i decided that when as my son grew up i'm going to spend more time trying to you know be around with him and my daughter and in trying to spend more time with them even though i probably got it wrong and i've worked too much as well but you know that's my back anyway um do you think now, from the people you see or the people around you, do you think we overparent now in terms of trying to think too much for them? Because if I ever went to my mum and said to her, "Mum, I'm bored," she goes like, "What are you telling me for?" <laughs> yeah. You know that, like, and what? I'm going to do something then. You know that was the answer, but now yeah. it's almost like I'm bored. Okay, there's a Lego, there's a jigsaw. Should we do some coloring? And it's almost like we're thinking for them. And at what point do they then have their own ability to think for themselves? Say, so actually, mom and dad are not going to give me a response. Let me try and work something out myself, right? And then the balance of mental health in all that, because actually, by being ignored or by being put in a situation where you have to deal with them, does that give us strength or does that give us? vulnerability there where we're dealing with stuff as we grow up and that balance I don't know if you deal with that mm -hmm. at all but is there any inputs that you can give from what you know yeah I mean I'm always hesitant to say anything as a not as a non-parent yeah. um, I guess it would also really depend on the child so yeah. um, you know if you're if you've got a child with specific learning differences cognitive impairments um, kind of maybe they've been bullied and they're recovering there might be things you have to do more than other than you would with a child without um dis without disabilities or without they're not struggling if they haven't been bullied mm. so i think it really depends i think um may maybe people over parent i guess there is a little, little less i feel like in the atmosphere if you like when i see my friends and there is a little less of tough love isn't there like i remember that i'm bored well what on earth are you bored for <laughs> yeah. uh, like like seriously i've never said i'm bored how could you say you're bored and then you go find something to do um <laughs> Yeah, whether, whether you, I don't know, I think, I guess, again, social media and technology play a role into that um, and mm. how people, I mean, adults' attention spans are really short, so I can only imagine what social media, phones and iPads <laughs> do for young people's attention spans. Yeah. Um, whether, you know, you give, you ask your child, what is, it, what is it that you want to achieve today? And again, that's not about putting pressure. I know there's a lot about helicopter parenting, and that's an interesting one, because 
helicopter parenting from different cultures looks different as well mm -hmm. and how certain cultures need the heli what's called helicopter parent i.e really worry about their child because of racism and because of race issues whereas other parents are more about pushing their child forward so there's they're different things mm. um I, yeah this is a really tricky question I, I guess I don't I'm not I'm not really sure I know that I have noticed things around manners that maybe uh young people and children don't get told off as much as we were or yeah. don't get told not to interrupt like I have noticed when some children interrupt it's like oh yes in a conversation and I'm not saying you should shut your child down, but it is interesting. It was more of a case of, yeah, uh, mom, you know, I will answer that question. Just give me two minutes and I'll come back to you. There's less mm. of that. There's less. I think there are fewer boundaries. So yeah. maybe it's about thinking about what are the boundaries? Why are boundaries important? Because kids love to push boundaries. But if you're really clear about your boundaries, mm. they can actually be cr really creative within those boundaries. Yeah, definitely. It's it, like you said, yeah, you know, all kids are different, you know, and there's no manual, there's no work. Yeah, and I think that's, that's another reason I just thought there's too much risk here. I don't yeah. There you go. Maybe you should go there, Leila. You, you can't put that in a Google well, calendar, I'll tell you that you now. <laughs> yeah, how would I cope? You'd be freaking out. <laughs> Spontaneity, ah! <laughs> What do you mean you want to eat now? It's not six o'clock. <laughs> oh, no, I'd be one of those mums, wouldn't I? I'd be like, no, you can't eat yet. No, I don't know. I just, yeah. Uh, okay, so, so moving things forward, um, what skills do you still think you need to grow, master, or learn to become the next version of yourself? Oh, that's a really lovely question. Um, I think some of it is around how, well, there's, there's like business skills. So there's things around online platforms and... Mm -hmm. I guess around marketing so how do I reach more of the people that I want to reach so those skills and then I think it's the other skills I guess linked to vulnerability but also patient I'm not a patient person that's like I wasn't born patient <laughs> uh, so that's always always a struggle for me mm. um, patience um, I'm okay at the perseverance I'm okay at the persistence but it's about the patience um, I think also um, around acceptance, you know, I'm not very good at accepting things. And I always think of that, I think it's Buddhist, the prayer that God grant me the serenity to um, change the things I can, to accept the things I can't and the wisdom to know the difference. So I think mm. it's also that wisdom to yeah. know the difference. I Definitely. think about that prayer a lot because I think that that's really, um, yeah, that's really a big one <laughs> for me to be my, for the best version of myself. So, and um, in terms of success, I know, you know, for me, success is a journey. It's not a destination. We're never going to reach a point where we say, I am successful. You know, we, it's the way we build our lives. It's the way we shape ourselves. It's the environments we live in. It's the information that we surround ourselves. It's the noise we drown out. It's the noise we raise up, you know, that, that create this cake that has a lot of ingredients called us. Um, but if you had to sort of define success by a value, mm. um, for me, it's not monetary anymore. There's so many other ways to define success. What would be probably your biggest metric? I think it's kindness, you know. I think it is kindness and it's small things. And I remember at the beginning of lockdown, one of my neighbours knocked on my door. In fact, I'd just come off a really difficult conversation. I was really upset. And there was a knock on the door and I opened the door and he said, <gasps> you're okay I haven't seen you for weeks are you all right how are you and it was so strange but it's so lovely and just mm. kindness. like that was a moment where I nearly burst into tears but, um but just I think it is about kindness isn't it like there's that thing about we are judged by our piety and our good deeds and I think mm. good and I think it's about kindness and we might not be able to go and save the world that's another lesson I've had to learn actually that's been really hard as a teenager you can't go out and save the world but you can give someone a smile you can help someone with a door you can help someone with their shopping mm. you can say I'll give you half an hour of my time you can say I'm going to donate some of my profits to charity um yeah so I I think that's actually what success is and it goes mm. back to the Maya Angelou quote people might not remember what you said or what you did but they'll remember how you made them feel yes yes and you know you're talking about the world and having the difficulty to understand that we can't you know no matter how much we try there's the impact that we can have on the whole world may be limited in our lifetime mm -hmm. but the difference we can make is to our world right it's the people around us it's the things around us it's the things that are close contact to us and it's the way we can build our strength and our knowledge and our information to try and help them so that we shine bright shine our light and therefore they can shine their light because of being in our light as well right and i you know i take a lot of solace in that because try like you said you can get into um 
a, a, a syndrome where you feel like you're not doing anything. There's no difference that you're making. But when you realize that just by having this conversation, you know, the conversation between us today, mm-hmm. I always have a little prayer that I do before I get accept the guest on to say, hopefully this conversation reaches all the people it needs mm-hmm. to reach. Um, whether that be one, that would be 10, whether that be 100, whatever it is, because that has then made my worth life worthwhile. You know, all the, all the experiences that I've had, the downs and the ups, that if we can share this journey, because I feel the words have a power. They have a, a ripple effect that sort of ripple out. So, mm-hmm. to, you know, not just, sometimes the conversation like this can be alien to a lot of people. And what I mean by that is, they don't have conversations like this. They don't have any more people around them to have conversations like this. And for me, I'm blessed. And that's why I started this because there's so many people around me that I can have these conversations and really create a normality of speaking in this way, in this manner. But I know it's not real for a lot of people. So therefore, if I can then put this out to say, these are two regular people. There's Layla and there's Babic. You know, we are not Elon Musk and bill gates etc you know these yeah, yeah. No, true. but we have we've lived a life in a certain way and we've been surrounded by experience we've been lucky to have a strong foundation beneath us that we can raise our voice and we can then you know bash these two things together and ripple out so therefore the people that are listening to show that we're not we're only probably one degree removed from you anyone that's listening so therefore if we can then use that energy that we have within us to share and to you know envelope the light that surrounds us it can only help you know and i have no i have no fear of rejection i have no fear of mm. of um other people's opinion because my opinion of myself is higher than anyone's opinion of me so therefore i know i can continue on this path and 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 have almost like a shield that it doesn't affect me if anyone has an, a negative i'll take it on say thank you and that's it and that's as far as it will go. And I'm sure you're very similar to that. I know you'll probably argue a lot more than I would. I'll just, I'll just accept it. Well, no, I don't know if I would. And, and actually you saying that goes back to your last question. What do I need to work on? And I think it's that. I still got a very deep fear of rejection because of the stuff in the school playground. Mm-hmm. Because in mm-hmm. the back, it's like, will I be excluded? Will I be accepted? It's gotten better. Um, but I don't think I'm where you are yet, Bavik. So that's quite inspirational for me to hear because you're right. It's not... And if so, no one, no one has to like you. Um, and like you said, I have gotten much better at it, but it mm. is about that. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you. You're entitled to your opinion and mm. let's move on. I'll start dwelling and ruminating on it. Why? So, why? Yeah. Why? Because I'll think, <laughs> what have I done? Why have I upset them? Why? You know, there, as much as I fight against being a people pleaser, it, there's still some kind of wiring that's happened mm. there about people pleasing. Mm. So, um, mm. so yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons I don't like to feel vulnerable. That's another pushback against that. So yeah, thank you for saying that. Because <laughs> I'll add that to my list. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. There you go. We move forward somewhere, right? We move forward conversation. Right. So now, Leila, um, just um, one thing. So just before we head towards the end of the conversation, um, I'd like to invite you on again. So what happens is that I'm building a studio right now. Uh, this at the shop, and uh, when this sort of whole craziness sort of settles down, um, I want to do more of these one-to-one, you know, in face-to-face. And I think there's such a energy and it's such an experience you have, and so much information you have to share that. I know we can carry on for hours and hours and there's still so much more to share. Um, but on this first, it was just more of an introduction and more mm. of an insight into you and, and, and the way you live life. So thank you for that. Um, so as we sort of move to the end of the conversation, there's two more questions I've got for you. And uh, just give the viewers a little bit more of an insight into you mm. and sort of the way you think, etc. Okay. So now what we've done, we've reached the end of your days. You're, you know, you've lived 175 years and you're, you're happy. You've done everything you want to do. You've changed all the out in people's views and opinions of things that matter to you. And now sort of you're sitting down or you're lying down and you don't have enough energy to speak, but you do have a pen and a paper and you're asked to write three words by the people around you. And these three words have sort of helped you in your life. They resonate with you and they hopefully by sharing them, It'll help the, the people that are around you to live their life in a sort of a little bit easier way. What would those three words be for you? They would be reach your in capitals potential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you can go into that a little bit as well, please. Uh, yeah, because I think that everyone has different potentials, different mm-hmm. ways of doing things. There isn't one set way of doing things, but 
I think it's super important to do your best to reach your potential, whatever that is, so that you don't think I wasted my time, I wasted my life, I wasted moments. Um, and that journey won't be easy, but I do think that that's, you know, that's, that's what I would definitely write yeah. down to, to help people. And I think um, it's super important because I do, you'll probably know this as well or you'll see this as well, is sometimes you see a potential in someone that they don't see in themselves, right? Um, and I know you know, Vesh is always saying stuff to me, I'm saying stuff to her, and then there's people around me that I'm saying things to. Because I can see so much in someone or the capability they believe. Sometimes they just don't have it in themselves, right? Um, and it's only when we speak and we use our words with each other that we can maybe get someone on a path that maybe they didn't believe is possible for themselves, right? And I know people say things to me that I'm like, mm, I'm not sure. They're like, you can definitely do that. I can see that. They can see it before you, right? And that potential is huge when you have the right support system around you, when you have the right, you know, rocket backpack that's fired up by the, you know, the people that actually tell you this is possible and we've got your back and, you know, we'll be your safety net. You just walk along that tightrope and we'll catch you if you fall. And when you have that kind of energy around you, it can only be greatness that's achieved, right? But it's only when we share our thoughts and our feelings with those around us and try and help in that way that so much more can happen, right? Mm -hmm. And I even like having conversations with you ladies, first conversation I've had with you in, in this respect, but there's yeah. so much knowledge that you have and I can see there's so much more still to go. <laughs> there's a long life still ahead there. <laughs> and, you know, I know you're on that path and I can see that you feel constrained and you feel restricted <laughs> as it is. And there's so much growth that you know you still want to do, go and there's so much skill that you want to share and I know it will happen like you said the one thing you need is patience it will happen mm -hmm. to stay 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 on the path and keep <laughs> surrounding yourself with the right information the right conversations the right people and that will keep moving you forward and I know it will okay so on the sort of the last thing now so this podcast is called bigger than the hustle and right now you're bigger than the world so we're going to open up this mic to the whole world uh 7.58 million billion people and they can all hear you they can uh, understand what you're saying there's no language barrier everyone's awake and and conscious and they're ready to hear what you've got to say so if i've given you this mic for 30 seconds mm. what would your message be to the world i think it would be please look after each other please be kind and please remember that what what good you do comes back to you what bad you do comes back to you mm. And that's the karmic effect of this universe, right? Mm. It, you know, we may not see it with our five senses, but we feel it yeah. with our sixth and seventh senses, right? And it's so important that we understand that everything we do, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, right? Um, and understanding that any service, any energy that leaves us with the right intention will always come back double. And if it's left with a good intention, no matter what anyone else does with it, that's not our call to understand and work out. It's like when someone says, you give money to charity, how do you know that money's going to where it's meant to? Yeah. It's not your job to know that. Yeah. It's your job to give it with the right intention. And if it's not meant to go where it's meant to go, it'll come back to you. And if it does, it will go to where it needs to go. And that's it. And, you know, we can live our lives like that. So at this point, I'd really like to thank you. No, thank thank you. you for being a guest. Thank you for getting me on your Google calendar. I know it's a busy <laughs> calendar. So it's taking a Yeah. So just just before we go, is there um how can people connect with you if they want to sort of get in touch or understand more about you? Sure. So I've got my website, which is diverseminds.co.uk. So you can have a look there. I'm also on LinkedIn, Leila Okai. And on Twitter, my handle is at Diverse Minds UK. And I'm on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page, which is Diverse Minds UK. And I've also got a Wellbeing 365 group. And that's a group where people just share wellbeing tips. We're helping each other. I started it at the beginning of the pandemic. So if you type in Wellbeing 365, or you can find it from the Diverse Minds Facebook page. Um, and yes, and also, Bavik, just if anyone did want to book in free 30-minute coaching sessions with me, um, you can do so via my website or you can do so on my Calendly. So it's Calendly, C-A-L. 
C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y dot com forward slash Layla spelt L-E-Y-L-A and then O um, and you'll find it on there so you can book a free call if you want to talk about work-life balance challenges or maybe people want to pick up on some of the things we've talked about here. Perfect and I'll do I'll hook it up on all the show notes so however you're watching this you're listening to this it'll be in the show notes you can click on there and it'll take you straight to Layla's page um, and please if anything has resonated please do get in touch Layla knows her stuff She's got a lot of information. She spent a lot of her life doing this um, and learning this. And a lot of it's been learned through life as opposed to through books. Um, so, you know, get in touch. Like I said, you can only, if you want to improve the quality of your life, you need to improve the quality of your decisions. And you can only improve the quality of the decision by improving the knowledge you get to make those decisions. So having conversations with people like Layla will improve the knowledge, which improves the decisions, which improves the quality of your life. So please use that. So at this junction, Layla, I'd like to say thank you. Thank you so much. I'm sure we're going to do this again, so don't worry. Um, and I'm sure there's so much more to share and there's so much more to go. So thank you for that. Okay, guys. So this was um, Bigger Than The Hustle podcast. And I'd like to thank you again for listening. Hope something resonated with you. Hope something you know, click with you and it will help you in life in some little way. And if it does, it's been worth it. So just a, a quick thought to leave you with. Um, big energy leads to big thoughts. Big thoughts lead to big ideas. Big ideas lead to big actions. And big actions lead to a big life. So keep thinking big. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.